second Bible reading that we'll hear Chris speak on tonight. And as we do, just think about the words that Paul is saying. Really deep and, and thoughtful here. So read with us uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 33 to 36. And on my pew Bible, it's page 1100. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Uh, thanks, Tim. Uh, well, my name's Chris, if you haven't met me already. Uh, I'm a student minister, like Chris said, uh, here with Bryce as well uh, for this year. Um, you might find an out outline in the bulletin you received at the door. You might find that help helpful as we look at this passage. Um, but I'll just encourage you to keep your Bibles open at the Pew Bibles that's on page 1100 uh, as we look at this text together. Uh, well, let's pray as we come to God's Word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with me now as I uh, teach on your Word. Father, empower me by your Spirit to speak clearly, to speak truthfully, and in a way that builds up your people here. As Owen's already prayed, Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts to receive your Word by faith, uh, that we might leave with a richer and bigger view of your grace to us, and who you are, and your love to us in the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, when our first child was born, I experienced one of the most overwhelming moments of joy, awe, and excitement I have ever had. Uh, get this, the midwife actually um, invited me to help deliver our baby which is pretty crazy when you think about it. And I won't get too graphic. All this to say is that my hands were the first human hands to touch my daughter. And so our little baby was born. She was crying, and so I gave it a Ruth, my wife. And then as I just paused to take in that picture, my beloved wife, my new first child, I just lost it. Two bugs flew simultaneously into both <laughs> eyes, and my eyes just kept watering. Now, I was so overcome with joy and thankfulness. From that moment on, Cammie, my daughter, had my heart. But just imagine for a moment that I didn't respond that way. Let's say I responded something like this after Cammie had just been delivered. Uh, Ruth, uh, based on my observations, it looks like you've just given birth to a daughter. Um, I think it's probably appropriate at this point that you take her because she's crying and it's getting a little bit loud in here. You, you might make her a bit more quiet. Right, okay, well, it's um, a bit of a mess in this room, so I might do a little bit of a tidy up, and then we should really make a plan to get going because, you know, I've got to get home to to catch the footy game. 
Now, I think it's pretty easy to just see how wrong that reaction would be. Where in response to something so wonderful, my heart's cold and distant, devoid of any wonder and praise. We get how that scenario is wrong, don't we? But I wonder how often we pause to think about how wrong it is that we as Christians could ever have hearts that were devoid of awe and praise towards God. Something far better than parenthood. Uh, In Paul's outburst of praise in this passage, we see a picture of the kind of heart God wants from us. The kind of heart that should make sense for Christians. A heart that isn't cold or clinical or devoid of praise, but one that is captivated by who God is and what he's done for us. So if we're going to have that sort of heart, we need to figure out how Paul could have that sort of heart. I mean, what does he know here that we might need to be reminded of tonight? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to consider the two big things that seem to captivate Paul's heart as he writes this doxology in Romans 11, 33 to 36. The first thing we're going to look at is the profound wisdom that Paul praises God over. And the second thing is the glorious purpose of God in this world. We're going to look at both of those things and then we're going to think about what we can learn from what Paul says here so that we too might have hearts that long to praise God. So firstly, Paul is struck by the profound wisdom of God. You see, for the past few chapters, the chapters we've been looking at for the last three or four weeks here at Surrey Hills, Paul has been explaining to us the astonishing way in which God chooses to save people through the good news of Jesus. Uh, Last week we heard about the remarkable way in which God used Israel's unbelief to bring salvation to the Gentiles, and then how God uses the belief of the Gentiles to bring salvation to unbelieving Jews. They see what the Gentiles have, and they want it. Uh, It's a plan that sees God's mercy growing and growing as salvation comes to both groups of people in a way that we would never expect. And so having explained all that in chapters 9 to 11, it's kind of like Paul pauses here in these verses, steps back from it all, and just sort of takes it all in. And as he does that, his heart can't help but burst forth in praise to the God who plans it all. And so that's why we're only doing these four verses tonight, because we also need to pause, take it all in, and praise God. So Paul helps us to feel the profound wisdom and knowledge of God at the beginning of this little passage. And it's kind of like he's saying, uh, you want to plumb the depths of God's wisdom. Well, you just can't do it. Um, I did a little bit of research, and apparently the deepest part of the ocean is like an overwhelming 11 k's deep from top to bottom. But the depth of God's wisdom is actually more overwhelming because it never bottoms out. 
He's infinitely wise. Oh, you want to try and figure out how God thinks and makes decisions? Well, you can't, says Paul, because his judgments are unsearchable. Oh, you want to try and map out a path of how you think God's going to act in all the intricate details? Well, give it up because his paths are untraceable. Look at what he says in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Uh, I'm about to finish um, my Masters of Divinity at the Prezi Theological College down the road. I'm in my final year. And so by this time next year, Lord willing, I will have been awarded a Master of Divinity Now, I hope you realise just how ridiculous that title actually is. You see, a master's level of study theoretically means that a student has demonstrated a mastery over a specific field of study. But what if my study is God? I will never have mastered the divine. In fact, what actually happens at Bible college is that you get mastered by the divine. You see, you come to see with clarity just how little you actually grasp of God's greatness. Will I really be able to say at this time next year that I have mastered God? I think Paul would say to me from this passage, keep dreaming, Bible boy. You see, who can grasp God in all his greatness and infinite wisdom? Who can compare to this God in any way? Well, the answer is no one, and that's exactly what Paul says three times here with three different rhetorical questions. Look at the first one in verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord? It's a rhetorical question, and the expected answer is no one. No one can read God's mind and and know what he's thinking. And if we think about it, we know that, right? Often we think we can read another person's mind by what they say or their body language. Sometimes we might get it right, but often we get it wrong. I mean, I still struggle to read the mind of Ruth, the closest person to me, You know, I might be thinking Ruth just wants to stay on that couch and and read that book in in the quietness of that moment. And all the while, she's wondering why I haven't asked her about her day yet. Now, if it's difficult to read another human mind, what hope do we have at knowing the mind of God? Who has known the mind of God? No one. No one. And then we go to the second question, also in verse 34. Who has ever been his counsellor? Answer, no one. No one is in a position to give the infinitely wise God advice on how he should think or act. I mean, think about it. Professors don't uh, don't seek counsel from their students. They give counsel. Parents don't seek counsel from their children they give counsel to their children. I don't tell Chris or John what to do. They tell me as the puny student minister 
what to do. So why would we ever think that the infinitely wise God would seek counsel from us, his creatures? Who has been God's counsellor? No one. And then the third question in, in verse 35, who was ever given to God that God should repay him? Answer, no one. Not one of us can say, God, look at what I've done for you. Look at what I've given to you. You owe me now. You see, even though some of us might think we're pretty good people who have earned for ourselves some credit with God, the reality from God's perspective is actually quite different. You see, from God's perspective, the reality is actually the reverse. You might recall back to Romans 1 when you looked at that. In Romans 1, we're told that instead of us giving to God... As sinners, we've actually taken from him. We've taken the glory and the praise that belong to him alone and we've given it to ourselves or, or other people or ideas or things. We exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the created. That's the message of Romans 1, isn't it? So that begs the question, if God owes me nothing, why does he give me everything? I mean, Paul's been telling us for the past 11 chapters that God sent his son to take my punishment at the cross so that I could be made right with him and have eternal life. If God owes me nothing, why does he give me everything? Well, what we see here is that the profound wisdom of God is actually marked by the profound grace of God. He gives simply because he's merciful. That's the sort of God he is. God, in his infinite wisdom, devised a plan to save sinners that was infinitely gracious. This is the God Paul knows, and this is the God who's captured his heart. Uh, but for many of us, the idea of grace is hard to swallow, hard to comprehend. Uh, this was the case particularly with a guy that I met uh, through some footy chaplaincy I did a couple of years ago at the local footy club in Bandura. Uh, this, was a for this guy was a former player of the club and, and he had been recently released from prison uh, for a pretty serious crime. And over the course of the season, we got to know each other and formed a good friendship, had a lot of good conversations about God. We were reading the Bible together. He even started coming to church. But one thing this bloke could never move past was that the idea that God's plan to save him could be on the basis of grace alone through faith in Christ alone. You see, this guy was always thinking, man, who's going to accept me? I've made a mess of my life. They've barred me from playing footy. I can't, I'm not even allowed to enter the, the club room. What hope do I have in entering the kingdom of God? Jesus' death and resurrection can't be enough. There has to be some way I can make amends for my own sin. Some way of giving to God that God might be willing to give back to me. And you can sort of understand where he's coming from at one level. I mean, so much 
of our life is based on getting what you deserve. You work hard, you get a raise. You steal from the boss, you get fired. But it's kind of different with God. In his profound wisdom, God devises a plan of salvation that goes against all our human instincts. A plan that sees sinners getting what we don't deserve. A plan of grace that sees the Son of God experience death so that we might experience life. We aren't told to work our way into God's good books. He wants us to put our faith in the work Jesus has already done at the cross. Who was ever given to God that God should repay him? No one. Why is it that Paul is singing God's praises in this doxology? Well, because he's let the profound wisdom of God in his plan of salvation captivate his heart. But Paul isn't just captivated by God's profound wisdom. He's also captivated by God's glorious purpose in this world, which is our second point. And what is that purpose? Well, it's God himself. He is the purpose and the reason for everything. Paul praises God here because in coming to know Christ, he has come to know God as the real purpose for life. And Paul wants his readers to know that purpose too. He wants them to know that they were made by God and for God. In fact, Paul says here, everything was made by God and for God. God is the center of the universe, and so it only makes sense then that God should get all the glory. Look at what Paul writes in verse 36. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now we have to pause and let the weight of that verse hit us. I mean, that's big stuff. The answer to the meaning of life has just been given to you. What this verse means is, is that if you don't know God, if, the, if your whole life isn't centered around him and giving him glory, well, you haven't yet found your true identity. You haven't yet found life's true purpose and meaning. And to live uh, your life where you don't yet know your true purpose or meaning, that's a tragic thing. Uh, I remember being struck by Mark Twain's summary of the human life in his autobiography. Mark Twain was um, an American writer. He was an atheist in the 19th century. And in Twain's take on life, there is no God and there is no ultimate meaning or purpose. Now, this is just one example of where people can end up when they miss life's true purpose in God. Listen to how Twain describes life from birth to death. This is what he says. A myriad of men are born. They labor and sweat and struggle for bread. They squabble and scold and fight. 
They scramble for little mean advantages over each other. Age creeps upon them and infirmities follow. Shames and humiliations bring down their prides and their vanities. Those they love are taken from them. And the joy of life is turned to aching grief. The burden of pain, care and misery grows heavier year by year. At length ambition is dead, pride is dead, vanity is dead, longing for a lease is in their place. It comes at last, the only unpoisoned gift earth ever had for them. And they vanish from a world where they were of no consequence, where they achieved nothing, where they were a mistake and a failure and a foolishness, where they left no sign that they ever existed, a world that will lament them a day and forget them forever. What a tragic picture of life. Squabbling with others to get a few fleeting joys in a world of which you are of no consequence and will ultimately be forgotten forever. Paul's words here tell us that there is a better reality than that. One that has a glorious purpose and is full of meaning. And that's not found in our spouse or our children or our career or any other religion. It's actually found in knowing God through the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. Paul is praising his heart out in this passage because he has come to know the true and glorious purpose for his existence, that his life is from God and for God. Romans 11:33 to 36 reveals the heart of the Apostle Paul. He is a man captivated by the profound wisdom and the glorious purpose of God. Now, as of next week, you're going to be looking at Romans chapter 12, and then you'll keep going all the way through till chapter 16. And in those chapters, Paul's going to be outlining to you how you need to live as a Christian in response to what God has done for you. But before you get there, like Paul, you need to pause, reflect, and praise God for who he is and what he's done. And we all need to pause. All of us here who know God need to pause and reflect. And even those of us who are here tonight and don't yet know God, well, you need to pause and reflect too. And so let me first speak to those of you who are here tonight who don't yet know God, who aren't Christian. What is it that you're giving your heart to? Uh, is it your career, your studies, your relationship, your kids? Uh, as good as all these things are, you're actually selling yourself short if you try to find true meaning and purpose in them. You see, your heart was made for something bigger. You were made by God and for God. And so if your life is not centered on God, it's not just that you're wrong. You're actually missing out. You're missing out on knowing and, more importantly, being known by the profoundly wise God who loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you 
God doesn't want you to miss out. He wants you to trust in his son and experience and enjoy what you were made for. Eternal life with the living God. And it's no accident that you're here tonight. Oh, we've been thinking over the past few weeks in Romans about God's profound wisdom and his sovereign control over this world. God doesn't make mistakes. And so maybe the very reason God has you here tonight is so that you might hear about Jesus, trust him, and experience the joy of fulfilling your great purpose in life in relationship with God. But of course, most of you are already Christian. So what's it going to look like for all of us who are Christian to have a heart who, like Paul in this passage, that is captivated by the God we follow? You see, we now as a church have studied 11 chapters in the book of Romans. 11 chapters all about how God has saved us through the death of his son. So what are you going to do with all of that? Because that's a lot of scripture. Will it just stay up here and, and give you a lot of knowledge, big head? Or will you, like Paul, allow what you know up here to travel down to here and pour out in praise. See, we, like Paul, need to pause in life and make sure that we're actually cultivating a heart of praise. And let me suggest just a few basic ways you might do this uh, in your life. Maybe you could, and maybe it's just as simple as this. Maybe you could commit to thanking God for one thing that he has done for you in the morning and then in the evening. Maybe you could write down your testimony if you haven't done that already. And after you've written it, just note the ways and the means that God has used in his profound wisdom to bring you to salvation. Uh, the other night I, was, um, I couldn't get to sleep and I was thinking about this passage. And so I was going through my own testimony and just thinking about all the different people and all the different circumstances the Almighty God has used in my life to bring me to salvation, to have me hear the gospel, and to grow me in my faith. And it just made me marvel at who God is, and it made me want to actually praise Him. Maybe as a growth group you could make sure that part of your prayer time each week is just given to praising God for who He is. And we rightly spend time bringing our requests to God and thanking him for what he's done for us. But it's actually good to also reflect Paul's concern here and just praise God for who he is, infinitely wise, gracious, loving. You see, it's important that we do cultivate a heart of praise because it's easy to fall into a funk in the Christian life, to become joyless and thankless, and even bitter. And look, I'll give you a personal example on a small scale. There was a point last week where I was just over it. Our kids were sick. We were in and out of hospital and doctor's clinics. 
This then meant that we're all tired because none of us were getting any sleep. Tetchiness was increasing. House was a mess. Bills on the fridge waiting to be paid. Essays due. And to be honest, the last thing that I was ready to do amidst all of that was to praise God the way Paul does here. In fact, I was more likely to say, oh, the depth of the stress and craziness of my life. How exhausting are my kids and my essays beyond understanding. Maybe you're in a similar place tonight. But maybe for you, it's not essays and kids. Maybe for you, it's, oh, the depth of my loneliness. Oh, the depth of my anxiety. Oh, the depth of the peer pressure I feel at school. Oh, the depth of my failure at uni. Oh, the depth of the pressure at work. If you're in a bit of a funk, struggling to praise God and find joy in Him, well, there's good news in this passage. You see, this passage reminds us that despite our circumstances, one praiseworthy thing always remains true for the Christian. That in his profound wisdom and according to his glorious purpose, God has loved us and saved us through his Son. My kids might be keeping me up and... And I might be swimming in essays and just feeling stressed and low. But I still have a reason to praise God. And because this is true for every Christian, I'll invite you now to read Paul's doxology aloud with me as we close. So let's take it from verse 33 all the way through. Let's read... Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Or who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him. Be the glory forever. Amen.